Praise be to God. Please be seated, saints. This past year, I uh, was fortunate and blessed by the Lord to uh, be able to meet our brother, Julius Santiago. Uh, during that time that we met, uh, he truly blessed me, and we have uh, developed a friendship, I think, uh, as well as a partnership in the advancing of the kingdom of grace. Uh, Pastor Isaiah has spoken well of him, and they were first friends, and I'm happy to also call him now my friend. And I pray that uh, throughout the day that he will also become your friend and brother. So, Brother Julius, would you come and bring to us the word of God? Greetings to you from Faith Community Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas. It's a pleasure and a delight to be with you this Sabbath morning and to worship our God. If you would, open your Bibles to Lamentations 3. Lamentations 3. For the reading and the preaching of the word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do cry out that this, this day and this hour, at this time, you would pour forth the ray of your brightness into the darkened places of our mind that you would disperse from our souls the twofold darkness into which we were born, sin and ignorance. Would you help us, O Lord, to apply our minds and our hearts to your word? Grant us keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, that we may truly lay this word up in our hearts and to put it into practice in our lives that we might grow in knowledge of you and in growing love for you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through Christ, our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Lamentations 3. I will read for us verses 1 through 24. This is the inspired the inerrant and the infallible word of God. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and again throughout the day. He has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chains heavy. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He has been to me a, a bear lying in wait like a lion in ambush. He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow. And set me up as a target for the arrow. 
He has caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. I have become the ridicule of all my people, their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. He has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten my prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction in roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. May the Lord bless the reading and now the preaching of his holy word. The title of this sermon is When It Seems, When It Seems, Your Hope Has Perished. It has been said that funerals are never the happiest of occasions. Even when there is the sure and certain hope of the resurrection from the dead, if we're honest, there is still the grief, there is still the pain of those left behind. Christians still grieve. But though we grieve, we do not grieve as those without hope. But I ask you, have you ever heard poems of the grieving? Have you ever listened to poems at a funeral? Have you heard grief personified, anguish described with imagery? You see, this book of Lamentations is a collection of funeral poems. This book was most likely written by the weeping prophet Jeremiah. And here we see through funeral poems a nation that was once a proud monument to God's glory. It's just now straining to pick themselves up from an enormous heap of rubble. What had long been threatened has now bursted in full fury upon the nation. Think about it. Forty years of consistent idolatry. Forty years of only seeking help from the princes of the world. Forty years of refusing the one true and living God. Forty years of despising the need to repent. Refusing to turn from idols to serve the Lord in obedience. 40 years. What we find in this book is not so much a description of historical events. Instead, what we find are expressions of uncontrollable grief. And yet, these expressions are given by those who have hope. But what exactly is hope? Well, hope has a twofold character. One, desire for a future good. And two, trust to obtain it, though difficult. You see, humans obtain beatitude by many movements. We come only in time to discover who we are and who God is and how we are to live. The good life, the Christian life, is very much the life of a wayfarer, a life on the way. But without a firm grasp of the end, 
life can prove impossible. The Christian life can seem as if I'm without hope. Therefore, we need the theological virtue of hope. Because hope desires that future good that is found in God. And hope trusts God will enable us to obtain it, though difficult. You see, it is God who gives his people himself in grace and gives us his people all that we need as we make our way to our heavenly home. One theologian defined hope as a theological virtue in this way. Hope is a graced confidence that God will give us eternal life because he is omnipotent and merciful. You see, hope Hope looks to Christ, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Christ who has gone before us, gone before us on high and presents our humanity before God as a pleasing sacrifice on our behalf. Hope is already not yet. Already, it orients us to the fulfillment found in Christ as found in His revelation and the promise of salvation. But hope is also not yet. Because it's given during a time of non-fulfillment. But yet, it goads us lest we give up. Lest we lose courage to continue to press on. With that in view, by way of summary, consider with me the first three funeral poems. First think of Lamentations 1. There we have a prophet an individual writing concerning a city comprised of individuals. In chapter 1, we find a funeral poem about a city. And the city is personified as a woman with vivid imagery. Lady Jerusalem is a lonely widow, a queen reduced to a maiden, a treacherous wife betrayed by adulterous lovers. One abused and without clothes, a ritually unclean woman. The description here is is dire, it's graphic. And yet the description is a description of individuals like you and me. A funeral poem about a city. Second, think of Lamentations 2. While the focus of chapter 1 is the funeral poem about a city, the second chapter is a funeral poem about a righteous punisher. Note this is a city of individuals. Even toward the end of chapter 118, we see Jeremiah speaks on behalf of the people who remain alive. And he says this, the Lord is righteous. For I rebelled against his commandment. Hear now all peoples and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. The second poem expresses grief concerning the Lord. Because it is the Lord who brought the grief. You see, though it was the Babylonians who invaded, the Babylonians who overcame and destroyed, it was the Lord who was at work punishing Judah. Punishing a nation of individuals for their idolatry. And those who remain are left grieving. The Babylonian forces led by King Nebuchadnezzar invaded for the third time. They sacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, the king's palace, all the great houses in the city walls. 
But Jeremiah had prophesied about this very judgment of the Lord in Jeremiah 36, verses 30 to 31. Listen and note that these are words of judgment on individuals in Judah. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him, his family, and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I have pronounced against them. But they did not heed. So in Lamentations 2, we have an individual, right? Jeremiah, grieving over a multitude of individuals, Judah. And while he acknowledges that what has come, they deserve for their sins. We see Jeremiah sympathizing with the fact that those who remain are still the people of God. And so he pleads with the Lord on their behalf. This is a funeral poem about a righteous punisher. Third, think of Lamentations 3. Though we have observed in chapter 1 a funeral poem about a city, and in chapter 2 a funeral poem about a righteous punisher. In this third chapter, we have a funeral poem about hope. Once again, an individual, Jeremiah, continuing to identify with the grief and affliction of the people. But here the prophet is personified as, notice, the man. Imagery has shifted from the woman in chapter 1 to the man in chapter 3. And though the imagery of this poem goes from darkness to death, and the picture seems to not get any worse, in verses 22 to 23, we find hope. And finally, in verses 58, we read this, The Lord has redeemed His life. My brothers and sisters, it should already be clear that these poems concern individuals, people like you and like me. And though the suffering and anguish we observe here is due to the people's transgression, these poems are a reminder to us of the excruciating anguish that characterizes life in this fallen world. The Christian life mourns the world, the flesh, and the devil. We grieve, whether that be for the consequences of our sins or the sins of others. Though we might prefer to not remember or reflect upon the morbid depictions of suffering and the pain described here, we need to be reminded. Because we need to be reminded what we must avoid. And what is that? Suffering due to the consequences of our sin. You see, many in the church suffer a life ravaged by sin and they're living in pain. Some are not willing to acknowledge these sins like many that remained alive in Judah. Maybe today you're undergoing excruciating pain and your soul is in a state of numbness due to your sin. Still others may be present today who are suffering pain, but not due to the sins they have committed but the sins committed against them. Is that you? Perhaps you're in anguish right now due to facing the world, the flesh, and the devil. But whether you're the sufferer who has sinned 
or the sufferer sinned against, this passage, this word is for you. Beloved, you need to believe the word being proclaimed to you because it is the word of Christ to you and for you wherever you are in this life. This is why I must ask you, what will you do when you think or feel as if your hope has perished? What will you do when you walk in the darkness, as it were, rather than the light? What will you do? The main point of our text this morning is when it seems your hope is perished, recall, recall, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I hope in him. Our, our text, our sermon will unfold this one main point under two headings. Just breaking that one central point. First, when it seems your hope has perished. Verses 19 and 20. When it seems your hope has perished. And second, recall, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I hope in him. Verses 21 to 24. If you look at chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, we read, Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. Now, it's helpful to consider the big picture of this third funeral poem. It can be broken down into two sections. First, verses 1 through 20, hope perished from the Lord. Hope perished from the Lord. Verses 1 through 20. And the second, verses 21 to 26, hope restored in the Lord. Hope restored in the Lord. Well, we do not have the time today to walk through the entire chapter. Keep this big picture in mind because there is a progression to this funeral poem. It goes from darkness and death to the redemption of life. Our text from verses 19 through 24 is really a smaller picture of that bigger picture. One could say it is a summary of the progress that can be seen in the entire book of Lamentations. Think about how it begins. Lamentations chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who is great among the nations. The princess among the provinces has become a slave. So there we have the lonely city. But then we turn to the last chapter of Lamentations. Notice how it ends. Verse 19. You, O Lord, remain forever, your throne from generation to generation. So we go from a lonely city to that perspective on the Lord, on his throne. In chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, I want to note two things the remembering and the affliction. Our text begins with the word remember. 
this word encapsulates what all the words of anguish and sorrow and suffering have sought to express. Oh, Lord, see. We see the same kind of language in chapter 1, verse 9. Just listen. Oh, Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. In chapter 1, verse 11. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. In chapter 1, verse 20. See, O Lord, that I am in distress. In chapter 2, verse 20. See, O Lord, and consider, to whom have you done this? You see, the word remember describes the vantage point of the sufferer. And it seems hope is gone. We see here the prophet Jeremiah so identify with the people of Judah who remain alive that what could have been the words our affliction. Notice, our roaming are turned to my affliction and roaming. The people's affliction and roaming are Jeremiah's affliction and roaming. And their cry to the Lord to remember is his cry to the Lord to remember. The affliction and roaming have already been described earlier. They refer to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem through the agency of the Babylonians, but by the hand of Yahweh. Still the grief continues as we read of in chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. The suffering remains with tearing eyes, troubled hearts, the faint of hunger roam in the city, false and deceptive visions of prophets loom in the city receiving taunts from all who pass by, taunts from all their enemies. And what are they told to do in chapter 2, verse 19? Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the watches, pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward Him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. Pour out your heart before him. So what do the people do? They cry out, remember my affliction and roaming. The word remember shows up a second time in chapter 3, verse 20. My soul still remembers, he says, and sinks within me. Suffering has been so great that it continues to leave their hearts bowed down before it. It is the task, one said, of the Spirit to hold the body upright and to turn it toward heaven, what otherwise would be inclined to the earth. You know, if the Spirit is bent down under a weight, there is nothing for it but that the body will be entirely bowed down, prostrate. And yet, that's what's being described here. The Spirit remembers and as it remembers, it brings the whole person down. Recall what was just said in chapter 3, verse 18. They were so bent toward the earth. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. That's how low. It seems that my hope it, is gone. It seems. No, finally, here the affliction. 
The affliction is described by wormwood and the gall or the bitterness. What's interesting is that this is the third time these words are used. Notice first in chapter 3 verse 5 and then in 3.15 and now here. And remember, the prophet Jeremiah identifies with the people, making their miseries, making their sorrows his own. He says in verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction. In verse 5, he says he can say that he has been surrounded with bitterness and woe. In verse 15, he says that the Lord has filled him with bitterness and made him drink wormwood. You see, to drink wormwood would be to drink bitter herbs. It was a plant with a bitter taste. And this is often used metaphorically for bitterness and sorrow in the scriptures. But I ask you, where else do we see this language? This language is used in Psalm 69. A psalm of lament. There is one who has suffered for wrongs and he has done and his enemies make it worse. What does that sound familiar? It sounds very similar to the funeral poems of Lamentations. In Psalm 69, David shows the proper response to such trial. And in verse 21, in that psalm, he says this, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Similar words. And it was this psalm that Christ's disciples remember when he had given the merchants and money changers from the temple in John 2. He had driven them. It was Psalm 69 that the Apostle Paul applied to Jesus in Romans 15.3. Why? Because Christ is the principal covenant member. Christ willing to suffer reproach for the sake of the truth. It was the words of Psalm 69, verse 21, that were taken by our Lord, who while suffering in body and spirit, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. What did he say? I thirst. Christ then received drops of a sponge filled with sour wine that was extended to him on hyssop, and he put that wormwood, as it were, to his mouth. In John 29, 30, it reads that upon receiving the sour wine, Jesus said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. My beloved, in Lamentations 3, 19 and 20, we find shadows of our Savior. The one whom Isaiah calls the suffering servant, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, Christ, Christ is foreshadowed by the city of Jerusalem. Christ was left alone. Christ was despised. Christ was rejected. Christ is foreshadowed by the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who expresses profound grief over Jerusalem. Think about this 600 years later. It is recorded of our Lord that as He drew near, He saw the city and He wept over it. And he said, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. This is your Christ. Beloved, when it seems your hope has perished and you don't know what to do, remember Christ identifies with you. Jeremiah could not atone for the sins of those who wept. 
Jeremiah could not save those who perished under the attack of the Babylonians. But there is one whose blood is sufficient to save you from your sins. There is one who can rescue you from the pit of destruction. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. As you remember your afflictions, remember Christ identifies with you. You say, He didn't sin. And I answer, no, He didn't. But He bore the sins of His people and He was punished in your stead. Behold again then the infinite value of your Christ. My brothers and sisters, don't be like Jerusalem. As our Lord said hundreds of years later, if only they had known the things that make for their peace. If only they had known. Christ was referring to himself. You see, Christ is the Prince of Peace, but Judah missed Christ in the shadows. It is just as easy for us to miss Christ in the brightness of his glory. In the light of His substance, we have more revelation and yet we can so easily forget that Christ took the wormwood, Christ took the gall, so that even as we suffer, we are not consumed. So as the prophet Isaiah asks and encourage, I ask and encourage you. Isaiah 50.10 Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of His servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord. Let him rely upon his God. Now you ask, how does one come to trust in the name of the Lord? How does one come to rely upon God in the midst, in the midst of anguish? Beloved, When the storm rises, when sins pile up, when your pain can be no greater, recall, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I hope in Him. Verses 21 to 24. I want you to note two things here. First, how you recall... Verses 21 to 23. And second, who you recall. Verse 24. Look at verses 21 to 24. He says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. There was an Italian reformer, Peter Martyr Vermigli. He declared this, The distress that was mentioned was final. An antidote to despair is administered. He says this, Never can faith give up. You ask, how was this called to mind? It was the grace of of faith. You see, the truths that follow were brought back to the heart through the grace of faith. Still you ask, from where does this grace come? 
the sheer compassion of the Lord. You see, it is not the size of your faith. It is the simplicity of His compassion. You say your faith is small. It just might be. But our God is not big. He just is. Jeremiah confesses, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. How in the world does Jeremiah recall this to mind? It is the Lord's mercies. This confession is one of the most extraordinary teachings of the Old Testament. Though Israel sinned against the Lord, how? In idolatry, immorality, oppression, in other forms of covenant adultery. Still, the Lord forgives the penitent covenant member, the one who confesses their sin. The Lord is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now you still ask, how is that? Because there is one covenant member who is perfect covenant head. And who is that? Our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, here, here we identify one of the blessings of the new covenant. Bestowed on those who are looking for and trusting in that promised seed of the woman. You see, Christ would later come and he was consumed according to his humanity so that all his people would not be condemned, but receive mercy upon mercy. Not just one day, but day after day. And not just year after year, but forevermore. Again, Christ. Christ is here in the shadows. Now, what do we make of this mercy? One theologian writes, The goodness of God, when bestowed upon those in misery, is called mercy. But this mercy is no creaturely heart misery that involves one man feeling for another and then acting upon that feeling. No, we must distinguish the mercy of a creature and the mercy of God. You see, mercy is in God, but not as it is in man. In fact, it is superior to mercy in man. You see, man is merciful because he has been caused or moved to mercy. But God just is merciful. How is he merciful? From the plentiful fullness of his infinite goodness. You see, creatures get tired of showing mercy. That one you love in this life gets tired of showing mercy. But as it has been said, God is not subject to such weakness. Notice the words here. Fail not. This is your God. Never cease. Never, ever. Never means never. This is your Lord. This means, as Vermigli explains, as God is infinite, so all things attributed to Him are limitless, such as His goodness and His compassion He goes on, he says, his task is to vanquish all those things that work toward our destruction. This is what he vanquishes. You see, if it was not for the Lord, who established an eternal covenant purchased by the blood of God incarnate, as as Vermigli says, it would have been all over for us. But regardless of what you may see, 
regardless of what you may think or feel, that is just not the case. As our text affirms, His mercies are new every morning. That includes the morning of suffering. That includes difficult Sabbath days. Mornings of anguish. Mornings of grief. But I ask you, do you believe that? You say yes, but, brother and sister, but, beloved, there is no day that lacks fresh proof of his compassion to you. Do you believe that? Not just every day, but as it has been said, every moment in time. So count those temporal and spiritual mercies. Count them with me. Consider this, the Lord of heaven and earth, whom you have sinned against, once hated and despised. According to His good pleasure, He has saved you from the pits of eternal destruction. He has given you the gift of faith in Christ. He has washed you of your sin. He has robed you in the perfect righteousness of the Son. He has made you partaker of the divine nature forevermore. And that is not all. You have life. You have breath. You have being. You have clothes upon your back this morning. You have food in your belly. You have a home to lay your head. You have resources of safety, resources of health and travel. You have family. You have friends. Not to mention, you have this church. You have Reformation Bible Church. You have here the communion of saints. You have the ordinary means of grace. You have the resurrection to come. And that just scratches the surface. So what can we say in response to these things? In a weak and creaturely way, that still falls so short. So short of the sheer wonder and glory of His being and His works. We say, great is your faithfulness. You know, the copula is, isn't there in the Hebrew. And so this statement reads more like a response of praise. Great your faithfulness. You see, all merits are excluded here. The Lord alone supplies everything promised here. The people of Judah were not going to be swept away unless the Lord Jesus, foreshadowed here by the intercession of the prophet Jeremiah, unless the Lord Jesus came for us from them. You see, as the people's sins could not, the people's sins could not rescind, they could not remove the Lord's promise. The Apostle Paul, he asks in Romans 3, 3 through 4, he asks this, What if some from Israel did not believe? Paul asks, Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Paul says this, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. My friends, our faithfulness cannot equal God's faithfulness. Our faithfulness ebbs and flows. 
But God's faithfulness is his perfection. The faithfulness of God is properly understood under the perfection of his goodness. God doesn't have goodness. He is goodness of himself. The measure of all goodness. As Psalm 119.68 says of God, you are good and do good. This means that all the goodness he communicates causes no reduction, causes no change in God. As our confession reads, God having all goodness in and of himself is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. So let me ask you, if he is who he is, and you are where you are, creaturely, finite, cast to and fro, susceptible to the fires of trial, the spirit so very willing, but imperfect, and the flesh so weak, if you see the Lord so faithful, beloved, who else should you seek? We have briefly observed how we recall. Now let me turn your attention to who we recall. And who is that? The Lord. When it seems your hope is perished, recall the confession of verse 24. The Lord is my portion. Therefore I hope in Him. This confession that the Lord is my portion, this takes us back to the book of Numbers. Chapter 18, verse 20. God tells their, the Levites that they have no inheritance. They have no portion in the land. But he says, I am your portion. The Levites had to abandon all other plans for inheritance to know that the Lord is their portion. The Lord is who we recall. By this confession, we remind ourselves that the Lord is God and our God. That He is our Creator, that He is our Redeemer who made us and saved us. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? If God is for us, who can satisfy us? But since God is for us, therefore we hope in Him. You see, the Christian's hope in God is a gift of God whereby we choose the eternal good of God Himself. This is all the work of God from beginning to end. God working in us to work and to will according to His good pleasure. And He works in us to bring us back to Him. This is what we confess. Who we recall when we say, the Lord is my portion, therefore I hope in Him. My unbelieving friend, you have not And you will not hope in the Lord. You have not said in your soul, you are my portion. Instead, the creature is your portion. The earth is your portion. As one medieval theologian put it, your soul is set, set low toward the earth. It's bent toward the ground. Rather than worship the first principle of all things who is himself a simple portion, 
Your portion is of this world. You're worshiping the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. My friend, the destruction described in the book of Lamentations is just a shadow of the eternal torment of the damned. The conscious destruction of all who continue to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The law is summed up in loving God and neighbor perfectly, perpetually, and you, you cannot do it. But Christ has. He perfectly obeyed the law. He drank the bitter cup of suffering in order that sinners would drink and drink in full the wine of salvation. So come, come repent of your idolatry. Come and turn from idols to serve and worship the one true and living God. Come and stop refusing Him. Come and abandon all other plans of inheritance. My friend, all your sins, you come to Him and all your sins will be forgiven. You come to Christ and you will be accepted as righteous forevermore. Church, one day we will live in ceaseless praise. But for now, for the most part, we live in lament. But did you know that lament is a form of praise? Bringing our sorrow to the Lord is a form of praise. How? Well, one, by it we are reminded and experience the creator-creature distinction. We are reminded that we are not God. That God is not like us. By it, our vision is recorrected. You know, often in the midst of suffering, our vision of who God is can become very blurry. But in lament, we are reminded of Lamentations 3.25, the Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. By it more and more we learn that the Lord is for us. Therefore, what else do we need? What else? As we read in Lamentations 3, 26 to 29, we were reminded of this as we lament. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent. Why? Because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. We also learn in verse 31, the Lord will not cast off forever. But let us bear this in mind. Calvin said, Bear in mind this truth that all our thoughts will wander and go astray until we are fully persuaded that God alone is sufficient for us. And so I ask you, I want to ask you a question. A pastor asked his people hundreds of years ago. He says, how much does it concern us all to make this portion ours? May we do so? We certainly may, each of us. But but How? He says, by a sincere, hearty, deliberate choice of it. Choose it and you will have it. Thus Mary did. He quotes, Mary hath chosen that good part. 
He says, now choosing one thing implies refusing another. We must refuse everything else that you can name and say of it, this is no portion for me. As the pleasures of sin are not, a merry, jovial, sensual, flesh-pleasing life is not, merry company is not, wine and music are not, strong drink is not, rioting and drunkenness, chambering and wantonness are not. Away with these then. They are no portion for your soul. And the riches and honors of the world are not. Gold and silver are not. Houses and lands are not. Mammon is not. Preferment is not. Therefore covet them not. Sit loose to them. Live above them. Further, our own merit and righteousness is not. It is a garment too narrow to cover us. A bed too short to stretch ourselves on. Therefore, we must deny it, not trust to it, not rely on it. What then must we take to, he asks? To Christ. To Him only. Choose Him. That is, we must cordially accept of Him on the terms on which He is offered. Come to Him. Roll yourselves on Him. Assent and consent to His laws and government, saying, none but Christ, none but Christ, none but Christ to justify, sanctify, rule, save me, none but Christ to be my prophet, my priest. My king. Listen to this last statement. It is a sign God has chosen us for his portion when we have chosen him. So I changed my question from the beginning. Not what will you do, but who will you choose? Who will you choose when it seems your hope is perished? And as you sorrow in the midst of the world, when it seems your hope is gone, my brothers and sisters recall, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I hope in Him. Let's bow.